Welcome to this week's message from a new church. For more information, or if you'd like to contact us, please visit our website, newchurch.nz. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this message. Um, you know, this is the high point in, in, in the Christian calendar. Easter, you know, we we seem we celebrate Christmas a lot, and Christmas is great because it is the incarnation. It's the beginning of of God restoring things to humanity. But it all leads to Easter. Christmas is is leading us towards Easter because it is what happens on that cross in that grave, and when he's he, he's raised back to life, that changes everything for mankind. And so we are in the high point. We're heading into Holy Week. And traditionally, the week, the Sunday before Easter, the church would teach on what, what's called Palm Sunday. Um, and they would teach on the passage where Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. And, um, and so this is one of the few passages that is uh, few uh, um, stories in the Gospels that's found in all four Gospels, which makes, which helps us to go, oh, this is significant because all four Gospel writers thought they should include this. So it's in Matthew 21, 1 through 11. It's in Mark 11, 1 through 11. That's interesting, eh? It's, it's not profound. It's just interesting. Um, it's in Luke 19, uh, 28 to 40, and it's in John 12, 12 through 19. Now I'm going to read in John today because I have a I have a profound love for John, and I think it's because I, I can relate to him because he got to the tomb first and um, so he's fast and he's the one whom Jesus loved, um, and he also wrote the book of Revelation and so I'm just like I'm a I'm a John fanboy, um, and and so I I like John. Now this isn't John the Baptist; it's John who is. John the Baptist is Jesus' second cousin. John the Beloved, as he's known in history, is his first cousin. Um, And let's read this together. We're just going to start with Scripture. If you've got your Bible, why don't you open it to John 12. Uh, We're going to start in verse 12. I'm reading from the ESV, which is the best English translation um, in Jesus' name. That's just my opinion anyway. Um, This is what it says, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason 
why the crowd went to meet him was that when they heard what he had done, uh, when went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you were gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is inspired by God. We thank you that the Holy Spirit um, would inspire writers right from the beginning in, in, in Genesis right through to the end in Revelation. The Holy Spirit would inspire people to write um, your word, would, to write down what you've done, to write this down so that we can read it and know you, Lord, that we can know you accurately and correctly, God. And so, God, we're so thankful for your word. And I pray that as, as we open the scriptures together today, you would speak to us, you would lead us, you would guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to talk, I want to do a little bit of some, of a kind of a theology lesson today um, to help un- you understand my method for how I'm reading this. Now, you've... Uh, I don't know whether you've ever talked to someone, but I've heard people say before, not you, uh, who speaks Aramaic and Greek and Koine Greek, not just like modern Greek, Koine Greek. Um, I, I actually don't believe you because the Bible has been translated into English. Like the reason that we have so many translations is because the Bible isn't written in our language. Shock horror. We're 2,000 years removed, and so whenever we read the Bible, you are someone coming from somewhere trying to understand what the Bible means. Every time you open the Bible, you are interpreting Scripture, trying to figure out what these ancient words mean to you. And if you don't understand that, you might kid yourself into thinking, you know, like that you're the best Christian whatever, or like that you have the only interpretation of this verse. But when you, when you realize that you are somebody with a worldview trying to fit this Bible into your life, trying to fit these words into your life, you'll, you'll, you'll come to the scriptures with some humility and you'll go, I actually need the Holy Spirit and the church to help me. I really, I, see, I really believe the reason that God made the Bible hard to interpret, because I do, I do think it is hard. I think it is a, the, one of the hard jobs of the Christian is to interpret Scripture. And I, I think the reason he does that, that God wrote the book in this way is because he, he wanted us to, to need each other. We, he wanted us to need the church to need a body to, to, to bounce our thoughts and our ideas off and to need the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us through the process. And so but the, the reason the Bible sometimes is difficult to understand is because God is trying to show you, hey, look, you have to pursue relationship with me and with my people. You can't do this on your own. You can't do this on your own. And, and so when we interpret the Bible, generally because we're a scientific thinking people, we think in maths and logic, even if you're a creative, you still think like that, 
because uh, you live in New Zealand in 2023. I almost said one, 21. Um, but you, you, have, you look at it with a scientific mindset. And so the way we interpret scripture, and this is accurate, this is a correct way to interpret, is through the historical grammatical method. Everyone say that, the historical grammatical method. Now that sounds fancy, but really what it means is you, we look at the context of the day, we look at what was happening at the time, whether it's just through reading you know, a couple of passages either side to try and get the context, we look at the history of the verse, and then we look at the meaning of the words, whether we're doing it in English or you're diving into Greek or Hebrew or whatever, um, and we use those two tools to help us understand what the words mean. That's, that's the general way that we interpret Scripture. As we read the Bible, when we read whatever verse you're looking at, we read it and we go, what's happening? What's going on around it? And then we go, and how, what do these words mean? Like, what does it actually mean to say the, the word love or the word um, tribulation? You know, or so, you know, something. You just, whatever the word is that you're looking at, what does this actually mean? And that's how we interpret. And that is a correct and accurate way of understanding the Bible. But I want to look at a different way of understanding Scripture. So, so to look at this, we need to ask the question, how is the Bible written? And I kind of alluded to this before. As Christians, we believe in dual authorship. Now, if you if this was a, 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 if the, if I was talking and I was a Muslim and we were talking about Islam, they don't believe in dual authorship. What they believe is that there's a tablet in heaven, and the angel Gabriel dictates word for word what's on the tablet to Muhammad. And so it's like what's there's there's this eternal Quran. This is what they believe. There's an eternal Quran in heaven. And those words are dictated through Muhammad onto what they read. That's what they believe. We don't believe that. And sometimes Christians kind of act like that's how the scriptures are formed. Um, but what we believe is, is an idea called dual authorship. That the Holy Spirit and the earthly writer are writing scripture together. And it's not that the Holy Spirit's there whispering into their ear going, this is what I want you to say. But he is using the will of the writer um, to talk to his people. And this is why, I don't know if you've noticed this, when I, when I preach, I usually spend a bit of time talking about who the author is, um, who he's writing to, what's the context, because this helps us to understand what the Bible is saying. But can I make a suggestion to you that the New Testament writers are skilled and proficient at what they do? We don't know all the facts about them, but Luke is a doctor. We know that. Paul is, a, is called a Pharisee among Pharisees. He's trained by a famous rabbi. And we know that John is Jesus' younger cousin. 
And he somehow manages to write 600 Old Testament references in 404 verses of the book of Revelation. Now that is skillful, if you ask me. Can I suggest to you that these guys that wrote the words that we now have as, as the New Testament, they were skilled at what they did. They, they were actually the top of the top. And here's why. Here's, here's how, the other way I know this. Most people couldn't write. Most people couldn't read. If you could do those things, you were in the 1%, you were in the top echelon of people because nobody really cared about writing and reading and writing. That was for the intellectuals. You know, like you kind of just more cared about how do I plow a field so I can eat grain and not die. And so the fact that they wrote words that we now have tells us that these guys who write the New Testament are skilled and they, are in t- they know what they're doing. Because of that, because they are, and then because nobody really knows how to read um, and nobody knows how to write, the New Testament in particular, Old Testament as well, but the New Testament is written in such a way that it's meant to be listened to. It's not meant to be read, well, it's meant to be read aloud, but it's, it's, it wasn't expected that every, you know, that Paul didn't expect to send his letter to the Corinthians and that, that they would photocopy a bunch of copies and send it out as an email, you know, to, to everyone and they'd get a copy and they would read it at home. No, they would come together and they would hear and then they would, it had to be memorable because they couldn't read when they went home. And so somehow between meetings, they had to remember what the scriptures were. They had to remember what the teaching was. So this leads me to my method of interpretation, which is called narrative interpretation. Now, every, all of a sudden, you know, before we were doing historical grammatical method and, and that's like it sounds scientific, all of a sudden when I say narrative, you're like, oh, yeah, I could probably do that. Well, I could probably, re-, you know, like that's like reading stories, eh? You know, like narrative is like stories. And if you're, if you're listening now and you're like, oh, Mitch, this just sounds like a bunch of hocus pocus. If we look at Jesus' ministry, cast your mind back to, you know, the last time you read the Gospels. Hopefully it was recently. How often did Jesus plainly teach theology? Not that often. How often did he tell stories to explain what the kingdom of heaven was like? All the time. The way Jesus communicated was because he, he communicated this way so that the hearers could go away, remember the stories, and remember what he had said. And so, if you're not with me now, I, I, I don't have any other convincing to do because we need to get on to some interpretation. 
So when you're interpreting, and if you're interested in this, a great guy to go listen to would be Chris Palmer. He's the dean um, of Theos U. He is um, a Greek New Testament scholar currently doing his PhD in, on suffering in the book of Revelation. Um, that's a depressing topic, eh? Um, and he, he's got a couple of, he's got some teachings. Um, he has a teaching at Glad Tidings, which is a church in, um, in Florida where he talks about New Testament interpretation. So if, if, if you don't believe me and you want to go and find out some more, there's a podcast and if you, and you could go listen to it. He teaches for about an hour and a bit on how New Testament interpretation works. Um, and he's far smarter than me, and he's got a dope moustache at the moment. So it'll be, it'll be great. So if you want that, come talk to me afterwards, and I can send you in that direction. See, when we read through a narrative lens, this uh, we're reading not trying to understand what each word means and trying to pick apart what is the Greek here and all of that stuff. Sometimes that's helpful. But what we're trying to do is we're, we're reading going, what's the flow of the story? What, how, how is the author speeding up and slowing down to tell us significant moments? Who are the characters and where do we see them? So let's start there. Anyone hazard a guess who the hero of the story may be? Oh, Jesus, okay, you got this. You guys are all, almost like you're, the, like, you're getting it. You, I'm so proud of you. Who do you reckon the, the villains might be? The Pharisees. Wow. Amazing. That's correct. Were there any other characters in the story that anyone noticed? The donkey? Yeah, well, that's an inanimate object. And this isn't a donkey who's talking. Oh, no, it is. It's animated, but it's, it's, it doesn't have a soul. This is a debatable topic. I'm just being inflammatory now. Did anybody else notice other characters they're a crowd so in, when you're reading new testament um narrative you you look at characters like the crowd or the disciples or the you know the pharisees in this case the sadducees you look at these people groups as a character and so the crowds aren't a um they're a bystander in the story so let's read this together of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Verse 14, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. We'll stop there. If we go back to verse 13, we see the crowd comes out, they lay down branches and they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. Now we read this and we go, man, these guys got it. Go crowd, you're doing awesome. You, you, you've, you've understood who Jesus is. But if we think about it in some context, this is a highly inflammatory statement. They are declaring that the Roman authorities are not king over Israel, but Jesus is. This was a, a mount to treason. They came out and they called Jesus king. They, they, they start to stir up something. I know they are being prophetic, but they are actually, they're also stirring something up. They, they, they 
call him out as king. Now, in other Gospels, we read that Jesus sends the disciples into a village and they find the donkey and they bring him back. And that's, that's the way it's written. But when John writes his story here, when he's writing this for us, he doesn't tell us that background. He doesn't give us that. Look how he, how he says it. He, he says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This highly inflammatory, divisive statement that could have gotten people killed and put in prison. And what do we see? He says, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. See, John, John paints the picture that when this highly inflammatory statement gets made, Jesus sits on a donkey and he writes it as though it's his response to the crowd. See, everyone's expectation of the Messiah or a conquering king would be that they would ride into town on a war horse. But Jesus comes on a donkey. When when the world goes high, when they go inflammatory, when they are stirring up rhetoric, Jesus comes not as the conquering king on a war horse, but as the peaceful king on a donkey. He he sits John's showing us that Jesus is the one who when when everything's stirred up, he sits he sits on a donkey, he humbles himself. And he comes as a peaceful king. He takes the humble position. He isn't caught up in the political spirit. He's not caught up in divisive language. He doesn't respond with a battle cry like I'm sure Peter would have loved. But he sits on a donkey. Jesus is the peaceful king. Can I suggest that maybe John is showing us how Jesus responds in highly inflammatory and aggravated situations. And as followers of Jesus, how we should respond. That when the world goes high, when things are being stirred up, when, when there's push on the church, when, when, when there's persecution that comes, that Jesus' response is to humble himself and come in peace. Simply put, when the world aggravates, how do we respond? Continue on verse 14. He says this, Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He slows the, the narrative down. He was in narrative. All of a sudden, he slows it down to give context and show us that this is a significant moment. This is a moment that we're meant to look at. Whenever you see the, the, the writing in the New Testament um, jump from being a, you know, like fully across to there's like it's, it's a smaller section, it's because we're meant to slow down, stop, and understand that something of eternal importance and significance is happening. 
in this moment, Jesus is fulfilling the mantle of King David. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem as her king. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had been done to him. He slows the story down even more and he breaks the fourth wall and he speaks to the reader. He says, look, we didn't understand at that time what how significant Jesus' response was. We didn't quite understand how important it was that he sat on a donkey. But at a later date, after he had been glorified, after we'd gone through the pain of losing him, after we'd gone through all of that stuff, we began to realize what he was doing. Can I suggest to you that maybe John is encouraging us John, who is the beloved of Jesus, who, who is the one whom Jesus loves, who, has, who, who, who is, has this close relationship. He is in the inner circle. He's one of the three. He is one of the most important disciples. He's saying, look, we didn't see exactly what Jesus was doing in this situation. And maybe we could find encouragement in this, that in our lives, there will be times and seasons where it is hard to see exactly what Jesus is doing. But John encourages us that when we look back, when we're standing at tomorrow and we look back on the season we're in today, that we might clearly see how God was working behind the scenes. Can I encourage you today, friend? I don't know what you're walking through in your life today. I don't know what tough season there could be represented in this church. But can I encourage you, even if you can't see Jesus, John the Beloved, who was in the tight three, missed what was happening in this moment. And when you look back on, on, on today, from tomorrow, when you look back on today, can I encourage you that you will see where he was, how he was working, how he was moving in your life. You see how much we can get out of reading the Bible as narrative? Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard that he had done the sign. Now, this to read the, to understand this, you kind of have to understand a little bit what's happening here. You have to understand a little bit more of the the whole narrative of the of the gospel and. I would always encourage to read books in full, read all of John's gospel in one sitting. I know it seems like a hefty job to do, but you will be better off for it because you understand the whole arc of the story. But when you look through the gospels, more often than not, the crowds is a negative character. Often the word multitude is, is positive, 
But often when we see the word crowd, it's negative. It's, it's a crowd who we see that, that, that are often they're the ones trying to stone Jesus. The crowds are often the ones who are causing chaos. The crowds are the ones who, who pull the woman caught in adultery. It's, we often see the word crowd associated with a negative group of people who are set up against God. But in this instance, we see the character of the crowd playing a positive role. This is what it says that they, they've done. It, uh, and it's the crowd. Sorry, I, I forgot. I missed this. It's the crowd who are the ones who make the final decision. Obviously, Jesus is the one who decides, but it's the crowds who call out, crucify him, and choose Barabbas over Jesus. And so the crowd is often a negative character in the story, in the whole story. But here we see them spoken of as positively. First off, they prophesy and declare Jesus is king. Then we see um, in verse 17 that they, um, that they had been with him when, they, when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb and that the reason the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard and done the sign. Can I suggest that John is highlighting this because he's telling us that a good crowd is one who has seen God move and share it, and have, they've shared it and evangelized others. Is this not simply the mission of the church? Seen by this, this crowd in a positive light here. They saw what Jesus had done with Lazarus. They'd seen the miracles of God, but they hadn't just kept it to themselves. They'd told others. They'd spread the news. They'd, they'd told their friends, their family, their colleagues. And, and they had evangelized their community. And they brought people to worship and prophesy and, and, and call Jesus the King of Israel. Can I suggest that maybe John is trying to highlight to us that If we want to be the good crowd, if we want to be a group of believers that that actually we are functioning properly together, it, it necessitates that when we see God move, we don't keep it to ourselves. We don't keep it just in, in our body. We don't just keep it in, in this church, but we share what Jesus has done to the people around us. And I just, I want to encourage and challenge you and, and I that this is what we're called to do. We're called to see the miracles of God. We're called to see God move in power. As we, as we did at the start of the service where we could see God moving in people's lives. But the flip side is that we then need to respond and tell others about what God is doing. All right, we're just about, just about there. Last verse, this is what it says. Verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, See that you are gaining, see, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now remember, these are the villains of the story. The Pharisees say to one another, look, all of our plans, the things that we've been trying to put into place, we are gaining nothing. See, Jesus is the king who comes in peace, but he still conquers his enemies. 
Jesus is the king who subverts the way we think he should win, but he still wins in the end. He still thwarts the plans of those who are set up against him. I love this last statement. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And I like it because I can imagine if I was a Pharisee, this is, that, that would have been me. Because I live in a, a continual state of hyperbole. Like I always over-exaggerate everything. And I think it's probably, it's probably my spiritual gift, to be honest. But you remember back to English class, hyperbole is, is when um, you, uh, you say something and you exaggerate it for an effect. And I can imagine the Pharisees, you know, like me going, oh, look, the whole world's gone after him. You know, they throw their hands in the air, frustrated, like, dang it, our plans have not worked. They've failed. The whole world's gone after him. This is what D.A. Carson one of the greatest New Testament scholars says in his commentary on John, he says this, but in the report of their closing statement, there is not only hyperbole and exaggeration, look how the whole world has gone after him, but superb Johannine irony as well. That's the fancy way of saying John. It's like when a preacher says Pauline instead of Paul. It's just like, it's like, It's just what you do if you want to sound fancy. It's irony as well. By the world, the Pharisees mean everyone, i.e. everyone in the Jerusalem area, including the pilgrims from all over the Mediterranean basin and beyond. But the world, the word here is cosmos, like in John 3.16, commonly refers in John's gospel to people everywhere without racial distinction, but who are lost and in a rebellion against God. The irony here is the Pharisees proclaim that the gospel isn't just going to affect Jerusalem, but it's going to go out into the whole world. Before Peter has his vision of, the, of no thing being unclean anymore, before Paul puts out the suggestion that, he, that he's going to go and preach to the Gentiles, before they start seeing the Gentiles getting saved, God has his enemies proclaim that the gospel is not just going to be for Israel, it's not just going to be for this people group, but it's going to go to the whole world and I really I wanted to preach this message for one reason as we go into Holy Week as we prepare for Easter may we remember that Jesus is the peaceful king who comes and he performs miracles and he thwarts the plans of his enemy See, when Jesus is the one that when the world goes high, he goes low. He takes his throne, not, not, not by sitting on a physical throne in Jerusalem, but by dying naked on a cross. And as he conquers in peace, 
He thwarts the plans of his enemies. And even those who have set themselves up against Jesus will begin to prophesy that this gospel message that the kingdom of heaven has come near, it's not just going to be for one nation. It's not just for one people group, but it's going to spread across the entire world. Thanks so much for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. To contact us or to find out what's happening at our church, please check out our website, renewchurch.nz.